Hello and welcome to another episode of that 60s recording podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Today is part two of my conversation with Julie McLaren from Analog Catalog Studio in Ireland. Um, if you haven't already, you probably won't now that you're listening to the, to the podcast because you're probably all set about ready to listen to a podcast. But if you haven't already, go and check out the video that or the film it's not a video it is a video but a film that julie put together if you go to the website analog catalog or julie mcclarnon's website if you google it or look in the show notes of this you'll find it there's a really beautiful 25 minute film that sums up uh what well, shows it's it's filmed at julie's studio so lots of amazing uh, sort of images of what goes on there but also sums up julie's approach to recording um really beautifully so i would advise going to check that out either before or after you listen to the this episode. Um, so we'll just dive straight in. Here we go, part two of my conversation with Julie McLaren. If, if uh, the people listening look you up, they're going to um, crucify me for not asking you about George Martin because obviously the course that you did was George Martin's uh, recording course. So I, yeah. have to, I have to ask you about, um, you know, what working uh, you know being there with him or listening to him or having him as a mentor it was just the mentor it was the mentor who put his name to that course and would come in annually maybe biannually but maybe you know once a year um and hand out the the certificate from the awards and stuff and again at 16 17 18 I wasn't the biggest Beatles fan like I was a huge Velvet Underground fan a huge kind of very Roxy kind of New York scene talking heads all that kind of thing but I wasn't like I wasn't somebody who'd um because my parents were Irish I wasn't of the generation that had been raised on Beatles records I've been raised on Irish records yeah um so it didn't mean as much to me as it really should have done and does now. Now I go to Abbey Road and I'm like, you know, I got the best start um, <laughs> that could have happened, you know, but I, I, I didn't fully appreciate it at the time. And I walked out of there and then walked into, into Strawberry Studios working with Hannah. But I mean, it's not, it's not all look like I had grade eight theory by the time I was like 15 or 16 and, and I could read score for the BBC and I could hear if a mic was placed in the right place or not. So I was, <laughs> I was handy, like, you know. Yeah. Um, well, that, I, it makes sense. And I, I mean, I guess something that I kind of really, I'm skipping over a lot of stuff because you did a lot of work at various studios post college. It seems there's you know four or five studios that you worked at before you started Analog Catalog. Um, but I want to, I'm, I'm kind of interested in the, well, the film that's just come out about the, the psychology of analog, I think is, is it's an amazing sort of, you know, half an hour film that's out, but there's so much stuff that you say in that, that I want to unpack. And it's something, the kind of way that you talk about, um, your approach to the sort of the job is, is amazing. I find it really inspiring just the way that you're talking about it now and in that film. And there's, there's a lot to unpack in, in that film, to be <laughs> honest with you. I mean, what's your, um, you know, I, so, okay. Well, I, I'll just start. I think we, if I just ask a question and we can start talking about that stuff. I mean, the one thing that particularly okay. struck me was you talk a lot about um, your eyes and your eyes being closed and what happens when you open and close your eyes. 
And I that really resonated with me particularly. That was the first note that I wrote down from the whole film was um, you know, about about your eyes. And I yeah. when I record sessions, my eyes are always closed, all the time closed. And not I haven't really thought about it much, but it makes complete sense not staring at a screen. And there's a there's a bit in the film where um where the artist that you're working with is listening to um playback and you're not looking at anything <laughs> you're all just sort of sat there <laughs> yeah that's such an odd sight in this day and age usually everyone's sat around these two speakers looking at a, a computer yeah you're all just kind of sat in the room together and it's um it was it's great <laughs> so yeah could you talk a little bit about the your sort of philosophy on well, I, that specifically... The... It's the science as well. It's not just the philosophy. The optic yeah, so, nerve okay, your approach, just yeah. <laughs> sucks the brain. It, it just absolutely sucks the brain. And understandably, like understandably, you want to know if you're about to be hit in the face. So therefore yes. your eyes are constantly monitoring the situation to make sure you're not going to, you know, walk into something or be hit in the face. Um, but if you're sat in a comfy chair in front of two speakers and you don't think you're going to be hit in the face you should just <laughs> shut your eyes <laughs> and just listen and not have them working it's just like just turn them off they're using all your brain battery so just turn them off and you know i think the fact that i've been operating an atari mtr 90 remote since 1990 1990, 1990 <laughs> was the first time um, that I started operating that I don't need to look at it. Like I, I, I couldn't operate it um, without looking at it. And again, with the Trident, I don't even really need to look at it. So I'm not, most of my working day, I am not looking at anything. And in fact, I'm pretty blind. Like these are my glasses. <laughs> like... <laughs> Uh, so and I don't wear them I don't wear them when I'm working a lot of the time because they fall off whilst I'm putting you know crawling under pianos and stuff so um so then I'll have them in my pocket and now and then I'll pull them out just to set the parameter on a on a on an EQ or, or on a compressor or something accurately um but most of the time I'm basically doing my job blind and um and it works well like I can hear much better and um and I just rely totally on my ears um and yes if you shut down your eyes you hear like a high res kicking a high a higher quality audio kicking mm -hmm. that you can you just hear more detail what's the I'm sort of jumping a, a, along a little bit, but you talk about your mixing approach and specific frequencies, which I thought was quite interesting about the sort of, um, well, just a lot of high frequencies existing. And could you talk a little bit about your approach to mixing? Um, and, uh, you know, that might encompass what, what, you know, what I'm asking about specifically, but what in terms of uh, your approach to, to where, you know the, the the sort of whole frequency spectrum and how you're kind of picturing what you're what you're aiming at essentially um well the thing the question that i threw to salt back to salford which is now a university we've ascertained <laughs> and has actual professors in it and stuff <laughs> in the acoustics department and i recently um they um one of them reached out to me when the film came out 
and um, and I reached straight back going tape bumped the lower mids and you had to roll off you know a lot of stuff above 5k if you weren't using it so if you weren't if, if you if you were making something that wasn't generating much up past five six seven eight nine up to 12k if you weren't using it lose it like because otherwise you're just listening to hiss and that hiss is going to build up over the over the multi-track um so you were trained to cut the top cut the top to keep the tape hiss under control um on anything that wasn't like symbols and things that needed those frequencies to, and it's all about signal to noise ratio and controlling tape hiss and then you throw it to tape and tape's going to bump your lower mids for you anyway and then you throw over to a different system that's capturing all these high-end um, frequencies and you're not worried about tape hiss anymore. So you're leaving in all these air frequencies that people aren't used to hearing. And then you're throwing it through various types of compressors. And then eventually it's landing as an MP3 in somebody's earbuds. It's like, oh my God, what a recipe for nervous breakdown. It's just... <laughs> ouch it's just not what we're used to what we're used to <clears throat> is tape bumping the lower mids engineers taking out all the top ends so you don't have tape pierce then you're putting it on a vinyl record that can't do top end anyway and then you sit in six foot back from the speakers and enjoying it no anxiety yeah. at all happening in any of that um and you know the alternative of mp3s through earbuds after it's gone through a whole different process that has just been <laughs> amplifying the top end and the air frequencies constantly all the way along that process through capture, mix, mastering, manufacture, and broadcast. <laughs> yeah, well, you started me. <laughs> Not good for you. Not no. good for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of interested in... I've, I've, I mean, I've just thought about this now, you know, if, you, if you're approaching a mix where, you know, you're, you're recording everything to your 24 tracks and you, you can't recall mixes and you've got specific amount of, you know, finite amount of outboard gear that it's got to go through. You're not reaching for plugins every two seconds to do something with, you know, that's something that sort of YouTube tutorials would have you think is necessary all the time. And it's just not in terms of mixing are you i don't want to put words in your mouth but are you essentially making sure that the source sound is right and then are you thinking of yourself yeah. almost as a balance engineer like you know like yeah. they used to call themselves or you know absolutely i mean that's you know you should know because this is your specialist subject <laughs> but that that is the the annoying thing that's happened to me staying um, operating the skill set that I operate, which would be the same sort of approach um, as, as as happened in the 60s, 70s and 80s, right up until Doors came into play, mm -hmm. um, is a producer would be the person who carved that sound at source, who made those creative decisions at source and captured where the word producer has flipped. And now it's, it's basically a, a pimped up, a mixing engineer that will change everything post yeah. um and the more radical the changes the more you're seen as as like an amazing producer <laughs> yeah. but 
I'm just I'm not operating in in um by those rules at all. I'm operating by the George Martin rules. And George Martin was a producer, and you know Tony Visconti was a producer. Um, but I'm operating by those rules, which were if you want that guitar sound, then I'm going to choose the mic for that, and then I'm going to choose the placement for that, and then I will choose the board EQ for that, and then I'll capture it to tape, and that's that. Um, and yeah, we were trained like um so you should basically be able to put your multi-track on bring all your faders up to zero press go and it sound like the record <laughs> it will take a few little oh that's maybe a bit more symbols than we need and maybe push the vocal a bit but it, it should sound like the record um and that was the way things were done um up until all the options of digital recording arrived. How did you find the way that you learnt, uh, you know, sort of your, your all the learning in uh, in the studios that you worked in sort of post-college and then the advent of DAWs and sort of Pro Tools rigs and all that kind of stuff. What, were you ever tempted to get involved in that side of things or was it always tape? And, you know, did you get any sort of a, and was there any tension about your decision to, to sort of stick with what you were doing? I thought about it, um, but everyone discouraged me, which was good. <laughs> yeah, I didn't need much discouragement. Um, and, I, you know, I'm so poor at reading things that I wouldn't have been very good. Like, I, I would just, I just knew it, it didn't fit. It, it wasn't something I could do. I'm a slow reader. Um, we've already ascertained I didn't go to school. I'm a slow reader. <laughs> and, um, like, it it would stop, it stops me listening. Like, that, that, just looking at screens and having to read where things are and, and operate, anything screen-based tech just stops my ears working the way that they've, train themselves or whatever to to work so it's just it wasn't something that I I I just prayed it was a fad um and obviously it stuck around (laughs) quite a lot but but that said more and more people are realizing that you know that the value of of the analog mindset um Well, hopefully, you know, I'm 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 a case in point, and I I hope that yeah. this whole podcast is is about, uh, you know, is, is about that. And I, I I'm I'm really interested now as about a balance, basically finding a balance and that kind of a mixture of this is how, you know, I I'd love to do everything just purely analog, but you know, I, I don't think that that's the people that I'm working with can't accommodate that essentially. And and I think that there needs to be a, a balance in, in mentality and approach to the way that people record. So, you know, you're at one, ex, one extreme where, you know, they go to the, go to your place. It's residential. It's, you know, everything about it. You're just in, embraced in, in sort of analog technology, but then perhaps, you know, I like to think that somebody might come away from working with you and, and embrace some of those ideas that, at their you know when they're sat at their computer they can still you can still record with that mentality with without yeah. um you know you're not going to get the the sort of analog results into like sonically but you can definitely capture moments and something you talk about in the film is accidents and if you're not so quick with the delete button you know you can capture those accidents and and 
Yeah. And it is, it is about speed as well. I mean, sometimes I'm the psychology of playing people as well. Some, sometimes um, a player, a musician will play something that they've never played it that way before. So their, their immediate reaction is that that's not right. Can we get rid of it? Because that's not the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> um, and then that's where your role as a, as a, you know, as the producer, the engineer there is to sit there and try and push them into a cup of tea, push them into thinking about something else, just buy enough time for them to come back down from performance mode and have their adrenaline settle a little bit so that they can then listen back and then just set it in the mix so that they can try and accept it. And nine times out of 10, if I um, find myself protecting a take from a, a musician that wants to get rid, um, I am right. And <laughs> they come round to going, actually, it sounds pretty nice. It's just new. It's yes. just the fear of the new. Um, but I've bought that time before they undo it. And I have to buy that time because unlike in Pro Tools, I can't just go over it and then two hours later go, should we just go back to that take? <laughs> um, so, you know, I have to protect what I have if I think it's worth protecting. I, th I think that's, I think it's really cool. I think it's probably quite a, I mean, I suppose back in sort of 60s and 70s, that's when, that wouldn't have been an option necessarily to go over stuff unless you were, you know, hiring out the studio forever and you wanted to just keep doing takes and takes and takes until it got perfect. But people were probably a bit more accepting that there was going to be errors. Whereas now it's almost the culture is that there can't be any errors and they don't realize that the, the yeah. beauty is in the errors themselves. And uh, yeah, you know, they're not necessarily wrong. They're just, it, it's almost that, I, I like to think of it as something that's imperfect. You know, we, our brains like to, somebody explained it to me about fixing things. Your brains like to fix things that aren't perfect. So if, if you hear something that's not perfect, your brain enjoys it because it enjoys thinking, oh, I, I, it's filling in the gaps almost of, of the thing that isn't the perfect thing. It, it keeps you, it keeps you on your toes as well. Cause you're, we're probably, we're, we're pattern finders. So if we, as soon as we hear something, we establish the pattern. And um, then when something hits outside of the pattern, that's when we come back in, we check back in and go, oh, I thought <laughs> I had this sussed. I yeah. haven't. And so the more often that that happens, the more you hang on to your listener. And, the more, uh, and in some ways, the more random that is, you know, and the more complex it is, see Bohemian Rhapsody and records like that, yeah. then the more you hang on to them for longer because they just can't wrap their head around every single tiny, tiny element of that, no matter how many times they listen. Whereas something's quite simple, quite perfect, nothing steps outside of the grid. They might like it first time, but it will be their baby shark by the time they've heard it three times. <laughs> they will not like it. Yes, you, you don't need to talk to me about baby shark. <laughs> <laughs> I am, um, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> um, I'd love, I'd love to talk a little bit about gear and um, just about. So we've we've discussed your the desk that you're using. Um, what's your what tape machine are you using? And and uh, what's your it's still the Atari. Atari MTR90. Oh, fantastic. Um, I know that loads of people, especially on, 
I've tried out not to say the gear sluts word because I definitely don't go on those kind of forums. <laughs> but I know people are like, oh, studerators, studerators, we all need to do, and they do sound beautiful. But if you're using it to actually build um, and compete with the with the with the drop-ins of digital the um transportation on Atari MTR 90 is second to all. It's just the way that the heads are configured. You can drop in one note, um, which I do sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty so. crazy. Yeah. When you think of um I've not used one, so I can't can't really picture it, but it's uh, it seems, you know, having used tape, you obviously know how it's how tricky it is to find one note. <laughs> that's that's crazy. If it's that, that well, you've got to you've got to um, when you're doing a drop in. Inevitably, the 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 rest of the band are like, "Oh, she missed it." Um, <laughs> but I haven't. It's because I know the distance between the playhead and the record head, so <laughs> I have to get in in that space. So she's like, "Oh, she's missed it." Well, I've not missed it. Cool. <laughs> out in a flash yeah, yeah. um but it's learning it's learning that it's learning the, the the feel of the buttons and the the distance between when you press record and when record actually happens and when you press stop recording and when that actually happens <laughs> yeah. um, but it's it's programmed into my because i've been using the atari mcl 90 since 1990 <laughs> um it's just hardwired into me now it's it's an instrument that's something that struck me when you talked about you kind of discussed this in the film a little bit about uh, um knowing your uh, sort of tools so well that you're not even thinking about it and um yeah something that comes with plugins that you you constantly being sold new ones all the time so it's mm-hmm. so everything's you're thinking about the sort of physical movement of the plugin as opposed to this just listening to what it does and um yeah, I suppose that's kind of nice that you're you've learnt your studio like it's an instrument, and well, it is an instrument, but you're playing it and you know it instinctively, like a you know, like an instrumentalist knows their instrument. There's no, yeah, you know, there's no thought process there. It's just straight from brain to fingers. It's exactly you know, you don't have to think about how do I do that again. You're just doing it automatically. Yeah, absolutely. It is you know, it's like that thing if you drive and somebody says what size the clutch on you're like I don't know <laughs> yeah. even though you've been driving for a hundred years like it's because it's just there it's in your motor it's in your motor responses that like if you stop me and said you know I don't know ask me a question about the patch bear but like I don't know but I do know. <laughs> yeah. I just I do that <laughs> it's just you... my, my hands now <laughs> yeah exactly that's it do you have um do you have some you know particular microphones that are go-tos that you you like or you know what um yeah what do you what are sort of the the things that you find yourself constantly going back to um pencil mics that have a really warm sound also known as km 84s yeah. <laughs> i knew you were gonna say that <laughs> um or the Neumann KM84 um have are, are the secret we can all we can all throw a U87 in the air and capture everything or a 414 and capture everything and more um but the secret of carving sound and only taking what you want and bypassing everything that you know 
cutting out of the picture the stuff you don't want is in those beautiful sounding directional mics um like a km84 or a c28 yeah yeah the times i don't own a pair but i've recorded with a pair a few quite a few times and um uh, there's a, a chap who's been on this podcast a lot of the listeners have used for for mastering actually called ben pike he's got a pair and he lives in leeds with me and they're just beautiful they, they sound amazing on drums and you're right they're just you're talking about creamy and crispy they're they're creamy creamy uh, i use them on hi-hats <laughs> yeah uh, interesting hi-hats i know drums is your passion hi-hats km84 valley people 610 there we go that's what you need <laughs> Maybe I need to get I need to get the credit card out. My dad listens to this. He'll be he'll be cursing. <laughs> um, yeah. So, do you have general signal chains that you're that you use all the time? Are you reaching for similar things? Um, you know, if you've got a band in, are you recording the band at the same time? And um, have you got you know? Do you use a particular signal chain for say kick drum or overheads or rooms or is is it changing depending? <laughs> Yeah, it depends. It depends. I don't know if um, somewhere on the website is a, is like a, a playlist of some of my drum sounds. I've listened to them. They're great. <laughs> so it's only to illustrate that there ain't one drum sound. Like yes. it really depends on what you're after. Um, so and if you've listened to them, then you know you can't sort of say, well, what mic would you put on the you know it, it it depends um that said often you will find me with a km84 off access around the hi-hats and this and the snare taking a slice of hi-hat and a slice of snare drum um with that creamy little cutter that is the km84 <laughs> um and pointing it at neither of the of the things that it is capturing um and that just delivers such a a nice retro um it does all the work for you yeah, you, yeah. you you don't need to do much else you, you you stand there and you're like i don't i hardly need to eq this i hardly need to compress this all my work is done <laughs> um and that's the old art of you know that that kind of um old school engineering where you don't have unlimited compressors you don't have unlimited outboards so you do have to place your microphones um in accordance to what you've got um and often i would place more mics on a kit than i would put to tracks so okay. there could be three mics on a snare but it'd all go to one snare to one track of the tape immediately without discussion nor telling the drummer what's happening so they'll just go oh there's there's the snare sound but okay. i'll be over i'll be under i'll be to the side and i'll combine them all and um and call it the snare sound is that happening on three this might seem like a stupid question but it's it's coming from uh it's coming through three channels of the trident yeah so they're all and separate. then all being sent to so you know say coming in on on channels um three four five of the trident and then all yeah. being sent to tape track you know seven or whatever something i've i've read uh i've, I've meant i think i've mentioned this in every episode since i've read the book but this adrian kerridge book uh who worked at lansdowne um studios he uh something he used to do was um, make or get the get the engineering department at the studio to make two-way xlr cables that that um 
sort of went into one. So that's one way that he would yeah um to double the channels that's that's where yeah. that question was coming from because i thought that's kind of if you're if you're putting it down into one i mean obviously you probably want to eq them individually but for yeah somebody... i do i do have splitters i hmm. do have splitters i've been known to use them i do have splitter um two into one um cables um but generally i would be like for a snare situation i'd be eq in the over eq in the under um separately and then blending the two on a ratio to fit the type of drum sound we're going for you know yeah. so it depends what um i'm always interested in in overhead miking techniques and rooms uh because i i flit about to be honest depending on what mood i'm in um and i i'm curious what what you know what do you do you have a go-to for you know do you like mono overheads or stereo and positioning and then room mics what what's your go -to? what i don't do is go straight over the top like this because yeah. it looks right but it, it sounds wrong yes <laughs> agreed <laughs> <laughs> and what you do get is shitloads of symbols and i don't like symbols because they're packed full of anxiety frequencies yeah. so um I do tend to uh, dampen, moon gel, whatever symbols, um, and also make sure that they're in tune with the track. I have a, a thing that if you're constantly hitting a crash and it's constantly out of pitch with the track, it will drive me insane. So <laughs> I will have to deal with that ahead of recording. Yeah. Um, and um, I will then, it depends on the piece. It depends, like if, if the drummer's, just you know doing loads of symbol work then i'll get as far away from those symbols as i you know as i can i certainly won't be going in and over so it really just depends on the piece there isn't a right or a wrong way um it depends on on, on how he's playing how he she's playing um if it's loads of shells and those shells are being hit quite hard and they're carrying around the room do i want it to sound like adam and the ants or do i want it to sound like the carpenters or you know it just depends it depends what you're after yeah uh, that makes sense um do you have just sort of final final couple of things I, I i do you have a particular set of records or two or three records that you think you're particularly proud of in terms of the sounds that you've got or a, a representative of the sounds that you're happiest making? Um, oh, I love them all. Yeah. <laughs> I can't say, don't I big favourites? I know, that's a horrible um, question. I know, isn't it? Um, I love them all. I, you know, I love a lot of them for very different reasons. And I am... I am sonically obsessed. Um, so, you know, some of them would be those, some of the records that I've done really well might not be my favorite. My favorite might be like, I've got just absolute killer drum sound on this, this track here, you know, that maybe didn't do as well or whatever. But, yeah. um, so I, I don't know. I know, um, I know in the film, I think there's a point when it uses um, a track by Bridget May Power um, from her album that has a real kind of spectre style drum sound on it. Yeah. And I know that um, that was kind of, that was one of those happy accidents in that I mic'd the kit in a kind of, you know, not, not unlike a Glyn Johns way, there was about four or five mics on it. Um, so it was gonna be a bit spacious anyway. But then I'd 
left when I went down to the control room, the mics above the grand piano opposite the other end of the room were still open. <laughs> and I just and I heard them and went, Oh fuck yeah, and just recorded those yes. as well. And then when they came back down, they were just like, Okay, so that's the sound of the album. Wow, wow. Yeah, <laughs> but they never cool. we'd never discussed that. We'd never said, let's go for a Phil Spector full on. I just happened to walk into the control room, pull the faders up and go, Oh my god, the you know, the the, the mics, the 414 over the grand piano is still open. It's sounding beautiful. Yeah, there you go, yeah. <laughs> yeah very cool. So I'm I'm gonna um I'm gonna start a little playlist that uh, of tracks that people have worked on so i'll find i'll dig that one out and um and find that out how did the film come about by the way i i did mean to ask that because it's such a you the way you the way you think about analog so i i talk a lot about you know mentality towards recording and takes and and sort of being good at the part and discussing stuff but the way you discuss it on the film is like just the next level of in depth thought process behind it and i i've just loved it what where did the idea of it come from and and how did it all sort of come about um it came about by i got help musicians gave me a small budget to make a film and i was going to make this film about kind of like a bill leadery thing about recording folk music because i just um i just finished like the lancome album it, it done really well and and um and other folk records that had done really well. So I thought, well, I'll talk about Bill Leader's techniques in this little film or, or something like that. Um, I wasn't 100% sure what I was going to do, but I got this little grant. So then when I contacted Miles um, O'Reilly, he said, I want to make the film about you and your process about how you make records. I don't want you talking about somebody else. Um so that's how it happened. And so the way that he did it is um, he just is the way that Miles works, which is he would just float around the studio on a few sessions, filming stuff without you even really noticing. And then I put my thoughts into, you know, I, I kind of organised them and I just did the voiceover okay. um, and then handed in the voiceover and he edited it all together. Oh, amazing. <laughs> and I will. I'll link to it uh, in the show notes because it's it's a was it about twenty eight minutes long or something? It's um yeah. But it's just a it was just such an amazing uh, record of the way that you think about things and the you know there's some really cool little scenes of of you recording some slightly unusual instruments and and uh, yeah, I just think it's a it's a really it's a really amazingly shot thing, but the the content in it is is incredible, and I I think everybody who listens to this needs to go and watch it because I, um, I mean I'm going to watch it three or four times and, and make a ton of notes. I think it's great. <laughs> it's well, it still keeps gathering pace. Initially, we finished it literally just as COVID hit. Like we finished it in March 2020, the final sort of edit, mm. and um, we were going to put it all in in for film fests. Um, all right. And then all the film festivals were just cancelled and put into the long grass. And then that meant there was a backlog of things going in. And then I just rang, um, I rang um, Miles one day and said, let's just throw it up on the internet shirt. Like, you know, what do we care? We, we did it with a grant, you know, let more people see it whilst they're sat in lockdown 
like was not able to go to gigs and stuff let let people see it so we threw it out there and um it's been amazing as I, I periodically like every couple of weeks I'll check in and go that's a few thousand views yeah. and loads more comments like it's weird <laughs> well, like you say people are uh, people's attention is going towards that style of recording now and it's something yeah that and then doing the whole for a long kind of, time yeah yeah Disney putting out like they realize that people sit and watch eight hours of recording get back yeah <laughs> and the amount of people that have really enjoyed that but yeah that whole kind of just watching people do that process is, is something that people obviously like like doing yeah it was it's a I mean it literally is behind the scenes isn't it and it's mm. uh you know people are listening to records that you've made they're not necessarily thinking about the thought processes behind it and it's kind of nice to hear um you know they might see an interview of the artist but nobody really hears um you know your thoughts on how it all kind of went down so it's it's nice yeah. um I I mean that this is packed full of, of great stuff anyway but I always like to finish off by asking if the, you were to give what's a what's a piece of advice that you've been given it doesn't necessarily have to be about recording necessarily but if there was something that can is there something that stands out in your mind as as a you know sort of a a piece of advice or just a something a sign off that would be interesting a takeaway a takeaway is train your ears do all those things that don't cost you anything don't put yourself through thousands and thousands of pounds worth of courses and expect to be told <laughs> things sit down with all the best records and listen like set yourself a um a, a little test and those tests can include i'm gonna put a tally down every time i hear a hook I'm going to put a tally down every time I hear such a sound, a guitar sound change. And so you just train train your ears to analyse exactly what's going on um, in the same way that a potential film director would be watching a film and seeing so much more than the general watcher would just be enjoying the plot and just, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, you just need to learn to think like, a film director but for music so yeah. that you're sat there analyzing every single minor little change in all your favorite records and then having a go at it i i think that's really something that's so really practical inspirational advice that people can take away and you know do it right now after that you know as soon as they get home and then it's something that i'm certainly going to do more of um I think I'll probably do it without thinking about it, but I want to do it consciously now that you've you've spoken about it so passionately. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's really practical advice for people. Uh, thank you so much for giving me your time. No it's worries. been such a ple uh, pleasure to speak to you. <laughs> no worries. Thanks. Thanks for asking me. Um, and um, keep me posted. I will. I'll. Um... So there we have it, part two of my conversation with Julie McLaren of Analog Catalog. You will find some examples of her recording work in the new Spotify playlist that I've put together. I'm trying so hard to keep up to date with it. Um, it's very difficult because I'm busy and uh, just trying to cram everything in is hard, but putting stuff on a Spotify playlist is something I'm determined to commit to because I think it's really useful. And I know there's a whole thing about Spotify going on right now. Listen, if you find something that you like, go and buy it. I think I've said it before, I still buy CDs. I've got absolutely hundreds and hundreds of them. 
if I find an artist that I I have a particular kinship with or, you know, when the music just agrees with you straight away, go and spend a tenner on their record and support the music. Um, I mean, rather clumsily, this wasn't my intention, but I have an album that's available to purchase on my website, um, recorded straight to two track. There's some examples of that there. But, you know, what, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten pounds supporting an artist that's the way forward. Spotify is almost like a shop window for that kind of stuff. Um, and it should be treated as such, like a sampling menu. And then when you find something you particularly like, go and support the artist in whatever way you can. There you go. I'll get off my soapbox right there. Don't forget that you can contact me. My email address is joe at all you need is drums. And if you visit my website, all you need is drums.com, there is a shop which has that aforementioned CD, also has lovely enamel mugs sporting the podcast logo that you can purchase to help support this podcast. Uh, and that is it. That just leaves me to say a huge thank you to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music, to Adam Mallet for the artwork he supplies, and to Rory Hancock for doing all of the uploading and mixing and everything for this podcast. I appreciate all of you. And I appreciate you for listening. Thank you so much, and I will be back next week. Goodbye.